Hello there, we are your host Vivek and Pavitra from the Agile Coach Podcast. In this podcast, we bring fresh perspectives to you through our interviews with thought leaders in Agile Coaching, facilitation, business analysis, and product management roles. Enjoy! Okay, we have Andrew Stellman here today as a guest to our podcast. Um, Andrew is an O'Reilly published author um, on an Agile book and is an Agile coach, uh, project manager, and also have been helping organization move to Agile. So uh, really excited to hear about your story, Andrew, and hear your perspective on how you coach teams, how you help development teams, and you come from development background, so we're interested in that story too. So uh, why don't you just uh, give us like your background, what you've been doing, what you're up to, what you're learning. Uh, so off to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, so I am a, uh, a published author. I've written, uh, my co-author Jenny and I have, uh, Jenny Green and I have written a bunch of books for O'Reilly, um, including uh, Learning Agile, Headfirst Agile, and uh, and recently, uh, a book and uh, book slash report. Um, what is Scrum Van? Um, we also have uh, more traditional books on project management, applied software project management, which is a sort of a sort of a classic textbook on uh, for software engineering and project management. Mm-hmm. A headfirst PMP, um, PMP preparation guide, and uh, the headfirst C Sharp, which I'm just finishing up the fourth edition of, which is really in that uh, software development uh, game development with uh, C Sharp. Um, I uh, started out um, studying computer science at Carnegie Mellon back in the 90s. Uh, that's where I graduated from, with a degree in computer science. And uh, since then, I've done software development, managed software teams uh, up to you know anywhere from large, small teams to sort of large 80-plus person teams, um, a lot of times in the consulting organization. But uh, I spent uh, half a decade as a vice president at Goldman Sachs and in technology. And uh, over the years, I spent uh, sort of worked with many, many, many teams. Uh, in fact, um, our, our other book I haven't mentioned yet, Beautiful Teams, uh, we, um, we actually did a lot of stories and interviews with t- people from all over the software engineering, and including all over the agile world. Um, the, uh, so and I spent a lot of that time doing agile coaching. Um, a lot of times people would, you know, people would, um, even if I was just, working in an organization, but uh, definitely as a sort of just as an independent coach, uh, they'll come out, come basically come up to me and uh, come and say, uh, here's my problem with my team. Um, yeah. How do I fix it? Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny, about 10 years ago, we used to do a uh, talk called Why Projects Fail. Um, and there's this old saying, um, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's a million ways to fail, but only one way to be right. Um, but it turns out that's not actually true. Um, it turns out pro- teams run into the same problems over and over and over again. And, you know, there's a lot of different variations and everybody's in the, you know, the details are all completely unique because teams are unique with unique individual people, mm-hmm. but they keep running into a lot of the same problems. And, and that's one reason um, when done really well, Agile is so effective because it, um, because it, 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 it's really focused on a lot of those problems that people keep running into. Um, yeah. Especially, you know, Scrum, one reason Scrum has, you know, I, I, I started working with Scrum back in, in uh, I think my, back in the 90s, honestly, I think they, uh, um, 
Ken Schraper wrote uh, Agile Project Management and Scrum in 96, I believe. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and it's, you know, that's, you know, this is before the advent of things like user stories. Yeah. Um, before we were using tools like Jira. Uh, the idea of being, of, of, you know, just the idea of it, an iterative, incremental approach to software development that uh, where, where, where people can, can, can really have feedback loops on, on, on many different levels. Right. It's just an extremely successful way to build software. It really, really approaches a lot of the, a lot of the real problems that teams run across. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. So um, I want to pick up on uh, the book title that you mentioned, Learning Agile. Uh, and then you mm -hmm. also said teams uh, need help on the same stuff over and over. Uh, so I just wanted to pick, uh, pick up on that mindset. But yeah, it looks like uh, congratulations on all these publications. That's, that's yeah, amazing. Thank you. so many books. Uh, and yeah. you've been doing it for a while. You said since like 90, 90. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, so we've been, um, our first book was published in, I think applied software project management was in 2005. Um, wow. and, uh, um, and honestly, you know, it's when you look at, um, when you look at the, the problems people run across, you know, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of different variations, but yeah. a huge amount of it boils down to what are we going to build? Um, it's not even when are we going to build it by because no one, you know, it's pretty well known that it's very difficult to come up with, you know, it's both really easy and really difficult to come up with an answer for when is it, when are you going to have this by? Um, uh, and there's a lot of great road mapping techniques and a lot of great planning techniques for doing that. But yes, the problem with asking when are we going to have this done by? is it still comes down to what are we building? Because I can tell you reasonably accurately what I think we're gonna be, when I think this team, even a large and complex team, is gonna mm -hmm. be done with this particular piece of software mm -hmm. um, or this particular part of the project. The problem is two weeks from now, we're gonna have a different understanding of that project. Right. And, and we're gonna be building something different. Um, you know, there's an old project management saying, right? Uh, plan the work and work the plan. But if you plan the wrong work, then you're going to work the wrong plan and build the wrong software, right? So, yeah, yes. so the whole idea here is, is really understanding what we're going to be building. And, um, but when you take a step back, it's not really about what we're building. It's about what we're delivering and what value, what, what value we're delivering to the people we're going to be delivering it to. And that's right. why when you talk about Scrum, and that's one of the things we talk about a lot in Learning Agile and also in, 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 in uh, pretty much everything we've written about project management and product, product development is understanding about delivering value. It's mm. all about, can we get something valuable to the users and stakeholders need it? And there's one thing we always know is that what they're asking for isn't what we're going to be building because they don't know the answer to the question yet. Right. Um, and so that's, that's, uh, and that's one of those many, many, you know, one of those many, many problems boils down to, yeah. How do we come up with kind of a shared understanding of what right. it is we're building? And that's, that's one of the big challenges there. Yeah. And you come from a development background. So you have a story on, you know, how you, you know, work with early on your career. You work, <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> so tell us that story. It's a fun story. I, I really appreciated that. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, it's funny. The, um, this is actually one of my early, uh, early experiences with Kanban. Um, and, uh, apologies to people who some people like to call it to say Kanban, some people call it to say Kanban. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to say Kanban. Um, yeah. I, maybe because I'm from New York, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
so we, um, I, I was working on a team and it was actually, there were two different managers who were working together. Um, and it was actually a very, very highly capable team. One of the best engineering teams I've ever worked with. Mm. Um, and um, they were running into a problem where they weren't really sure why, but work was just, it wasn't that work was taking longer than they felt it should. It's that mm. um, a lot of times features that would, would be going along just fine, but kind of just ground to a halt. And they weren't really sure why, but sometimes it's like software would be, they, the team would be constantly building software and, and, and the work would constantly be being released. But they would look back and, you know, say over the last three months, these seven or eight initiatives just stopped and we weren't really sure why they stopped. Um, and that was, that was going to be a problem because it's starting to be visible to their senior management. So they, um, they said, well, can you help me with this? And I said, sure. And there was yeah. actually, I was actually working um, more, in a, more in a developer role in this team. Mm -hmm. This happened to be a team where I was, um, I was mostly doing development architecture and you know, basically designing and, and executing large scale systems and working with, a, with sort of mid-sized teams to actually get code out the door yeah. and doing some amount of coding myself. Um, but I'd also set up a lot of their project management system. And then they mm -hmm. were, they were, they'd adopted some agile practices, but they were, the, org the organization as a whole was more of a waterfall organization. So it was, it was kind of this, um, if, if you've read about water scrum fall, where you kind of put some scrum practices in place, but in a larger waterfall context, because you just don't have a choice with that, that's, that's what this was. And we, we got it about as efficiently as we thought we could. Mm -hmm. So, um, I took over a wall of this office. Um, I got some some sort of sort of black low adhesion tape, mm -hmm. and taped off uh, columns and made this giant scrum band board, or sorry, giant kanban board across the entire wall, probably about 15 feet long, um, mm -hmm. and uh, tracked. Started you know adding columns as we discovered um, as as we discovered new stages. Um, one of the ideas behind kanban is uh, is your um, you're visualizing the workflow. Um, mm -hmm. So what you're doing is uh, is you're, you're answering questions. Um, what exactly is the team doing right now? Uh, what is happening to the individual pieces of work? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the tools for that is uh, is, is a um, value stream map where you actually map out the specific stages that these these work items go through. And so that's that's what yeah. I was doing. Um, and uh, and the intention was that we would we would uh, understand the current process and then set work in progress limits for each stage of the process. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very standard Kanban approach. Right. Um, and so I started putting like, take index cards, drawing features on them, um, work items on them, tacking up on the wall with push pins and moving them along this process. And, I just, and, and uh, they started piling up in a couple of columns and every one of those columns corresponded to a state where a manager was making, it was a very senior manager who had to make some decisions mm. and was, and as soon as I started talking about it to the uh, to the to both engineering managers, um, they got really uncomfortable. Um, and what this became clear was that they knew exactly what the problem was. That right. this man, senior manager, just never want. There were some things he didn't want. He didn't want done, but he didn't want to say no. So he basically just kind of let them languish, um, waiting for reviews, basically waiting for him to sign off on things, and he never did. Um, and huh. so you could see these work items just piling up in those areas. And at that point, they pulled me aside and quietly asked me to take down the Kanban board and never mention this again, because the last thing they wanted to do was let the senior manager hear that they 
sort of come up with incontrovertible proof that he was the, car, the cause of all these things that he was complaining about. Um, and that's actually, wow. you know, the thing is, that's actually how a lot of process improvements and especially agile, um, agile change initiatives go. Um, like if you want to, um, uh, if you're, you're, you're doing a, you're, you're trying to put agile in place across an organization, um, you're doing it, you know, you might set up a nice agile transformation team and you might get all of the senior managers saying, signing off on the whole transformation effort. Um, all right, we're good at it. And then, um, but pretty soon what it shows is that many times the senior, the, the, you know, there's an old saying, the fish rots from the head. And, and, and a lot of times, serious process problems, the serious agile problems, agile related problems happen because people at the top cause them. Um, and one thing agile is really, really good is surfacing those issues um yeah. so you know a lot of times um you know a, a lot of times um when teams look into scrum band for example mm -hmm. um and this is something i've heard i don't so i don't take on a lot of agile coaching right now because i've, I've been spending sort of most of my time full time with a specific team yeah. um but when i do talk to teams to do coaching um i almost always hear the same, same, the same questions over and over again, or the same comments, you know, you know, we're a scrum team, but we don't think we have the right person in the product owner role, you know, or, or the, the product owner's not doing a great job of managing their requests. You know, we're, we're following all the rules of scrum and everything's doing everything right. We're ticking all the right boxes. Right. Um, but you know, our stakeholders are, they keep complaining. Our users are complaining that it seems like as, as time goes and goes on, it takes longer and longer and longer for us to get their requests back to them. Sure. Um, I, I have a question we, on that one. Andy, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't mind. So sure. you, know, you said like a lot of the, you know, I've actually felt it like, you know, a lot of the times, you know, there are challenges in mid or senior management or there's some concern, right? So uh, what have you found out in working with so many teams? Why do, do these concerns or uh, resistance? What, what are some of the roots of uh, that? Oh, sure. Well, so it, it all, you know, it, a lot of it really boils down to the idea that senior managers really want, and it's not just senior managers, often it's a senior architect, often it's a developer who's just in control of, a, of an important part of the project. Okay. They, they really adhere to this command and control mindset where they, um, where they don't, uh, instead of trusting the team to get things done, they really want to really manage how the how the project's going to be done they want to say we're going to do this step and then this step and then this step and this does they want to they want a complete roadmap down to a very micro level of exactly how the software project's going to go um and and then they want to be able that gives them a sense of control hmm. um and uh, and there's um you know and, and and the thing is when you talk about when you talk about agile teams there's a balance there's kind of a um the yin and yang here, there's, uh, there's command and control, and then there's self-organization. Mm -hmm. um, agile teams work best as self-organizing teams. Um, and, uh, and when most people talk about self-organization, one, one, um, uh, one of the classic examples of how teams self-organize is on a scrum team. When a project manager will have a... Uh, well, you know, so if you've got a, you know, even if a project manager is, is called, uh, you know, they have the title Scrum Master, if they still have that classic command and control project management approach, 
right. where they own the plan and they've planned it out and it's their job to make sure that everybody sticks to the plan. Yeah. The, uh, what they'll find is um, they'll have, say, they'll have a daily scrum or a daily stand-up where everybody's, you know, we're, we're, that, we're in that meeting. Um, they'll, they'll go to the first person on the team and say, okay, what have you done? What have you done in the project since the last time we met? Okay, mm. well, here are, your next, here are your next assignments. And now what roadblocks can I clear up for you? And mm. they'll go to the next, next project person. What, what have you done? You know, when, they says, when, when this person says, what have you done on the project? What they're really saying is, what have you done for my plan? What have you done when you've done for the assignments that I gave you? Uh, so a classic way to turn yeah. this into a self to help this team become more self-organizing is <laughs> instead of, instead of, the, instead of the, the project manager acting as scrum master asking these questions, um, the in, in, instead of assigning the work to the individual people, they leave all the work unassigned. And at that daily scrum meeting, each person says, here's what I've done since the last time, and here's what I'm going to be doing next. And they assign themselves the next work. You've done, in, and so let's say you've got a two-week two sprint. Well, you've probably spent between you know, half a day to a, a day, probably about half a day, at the beginning of the sprint, doing sprint planning, right? And where you've, where you've taken the work, um, if you're, say if you're using user stories, you've selected the stories that you, that, that you think are going to sit into the sprint, and then you've decomposed just enough of them into tasks so that you can get started in the first couple of days of work. Well, instead of, you know, the command and control project manager will then insist on writing somebody's name on each one of those tasks. Say, well, you're going to do this task and you're going to do this task. So they can know over this next two weeks of work, they know exactly who's doing what, when they're going to want to order everything. Yeah. A more self-organized team, a self-organizing team will take those tasks and basically put them in a pile. And mm. everybody knows what they are. And each person will say, okay, I'm going to do this one next. And usually that works out just fine. And the reason you have these daily meetings is you, it's the intention of these daily meetings is, is, uh, is to actually figure out, look at what's happening and, mm. uh, and, and making sure that make sure the entire team's on board. Um, and, and, you know, from a technical perspective, you want to do, you know, want to, from a technical software engineering perspective, um, those daily scrum meetings implement a, um, in a, an inspection, um, inspection uh, visibility adaptation cycle, um, mm -hmm. where that it's an inspection meeting where what you're doing is you're actually inspecting the plan. That's a classic software engineering inspection meeting that, you know, where the idea of inspection bakes, dates back to the, to the 60s. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, uh, and so this is, um, and, and, and uh, what you'll see is, uh, most of the time, people will self-assign themselves, self -assign themselves work and everything will be fine. Occasionally, someone will say, I'll do this next. And somebody else will say, well, you know what? Maybe if you do this other thing first, because I know that I'm going to be working on this other piece. And if you wait for me to be done, you'll be able to reuse some of the code I've written for that. Right. Um, that's the inspection working. And that's the kind of adjustment that you can't do if you have a complete, or it's very difficult to do. Because if you have a plan and control approach, rather than a self-organizing approach, yeah. um, where um, then you actually have to go back and rework the whole plan because there's all sorts of dependencies that will cascade. Right. Um, the, and it's a difference, not just in approach, command and control versus self-organizing, but it's a difference in mindset, just right. in case versus just in time. Just in time planning is much more effective than just in case planning. Planning yeah. only the amount of work you absolutely need to do and no more. Hmm. Um, and it's, and it's the same, the same just-in-time attitude um, 
write only the documentation you need and no more. Do yeah. only the only the testing you need and no more. Um, don't, um, which doesn't mean don't test. It means test really, really well. But don't I, don't spend all your time planning out your testing. Actually, go and build some effective tests. Yeah. Don't over architect. Don't spend a ton of time up. It doesn't mean don't do any architecture. Some of the best agile teams do a lot of architecture planning because they need it. But yeah. don't over plan. Leave things. Yeah. Leave a lot of things. Leave as much as you can up to the implementation. It's it, it all comes down to this principle of of last responsible moment. Make all decisions, whether it's about planning, architecture, testing, documentation, design, at the last responsible moment. So right. don't wait until it's irresponsible. But if it's response, if you can responsibly put off that decision, do it because then you're then you decide. Then that means you've decided to make that decision later when you have more data available and you'll make a better decision. Yeah. So Andrew, you, you actually gave us some really good example. And you know, the way that I'm hearing is the command and control. We talked about it. And yeah, in, in reality, it's not just an agile issue. It's, you know, in, in our society, we've been dealing with command and control uh, yes. in various different institutions, right? So uh, the important question is, how do you inspire people to let go of command and control or like how do you have them see the benefits of letting go of command and control so that we can have self-organizing teams it's all about one word trust you have mm. to trust your teams you have to trust your process you have to trust yourself you have to yeah. trust everyone around you and here's the thing that's really hard mm -hmm. like it's hard to trust your team and sometimes it doesn't end well you know i'm gonna there's um, there's there's a a reality of things like in that story I told where it turns out that the senior manager who was complaining the most was the cause of the problems that he was complaining about. Well, a lot of times you're in an organization where you need command and control. Yeah. You need um, you know the uh, um, you you need you know if if you um, if you talk about the uh, the sort of the agile manifesto agile manifesto principles. Um, what, what do they mean when they say comprehensive documentation? Um, well, you know, com, you know, you know, or 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 or, or contract based, you know, your collaboration over negotiation. You know, it's um, yeah. When you're talking about things like comprehensive documentation, we're talking about binders of requirements. Right. When you're talking about um, about writing a huge amount of work up front. A lot of times, you're doing that because you're in an organization where you have a culture instead of a culture of trust you have a culture of blame mm. um i've worked for teams like i worked for a team where there was there was this it wasn't just a culture of blame it was a culture of fear um every time there was a bug that was discovered and that 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 made it into production which literally every single software team in history has done like bugs make it into production yeah um the senior manager who's who could basically fire anyone at will would right. come stomping out of his office, literally gather the entire group over 50 people into a big circle, scream at the top of his lungs and demand to know who caused it. I've, um, I've actually been in multiple of those meetings when I was a business analyst and I was a new business analyst and I didn't know if it was like a normal thing in IT. Mm -hmm. I've heard, like seen grown men being yelled at and it's, yeah it's it's crazy yeah <laughs> well that's so in an environment like that um an environment like that you want comprehensive documentation you yeah. want as as me say if i'm a developer 
and I wrote some code that turns out to not do what it's but what the users think it should do. I want to be able to point to that that requirements document that's a 50 page long requirements document and say, well, I just coded what was in that document. So don't look at me. Look at whoever signed off on that document. And then there's like 12 signatures on that document. So yes. no one person is to blame. It's like distributed because um, yes. that and, and that's that's a CYA environment. Cover your ass. Uh, yes. No, that is yeah. such. That reminds me of so many things. Actually, some of the trauma actually being being a business uh, analyst in this team, but it is so true. Like yes, if if you have uh, a culture of fear where people have been punished, like how can you expect them to be transparent? Because they're going to be punished if they are transparent. Um, and it's uh, it's crazy. It's like you know, I grew up I grew up in Nepal, so. Uh, where, you know, in school, like it was command and control style. So, it, you know, when I was there, I literally remember like felt like being in school where you're being yelled at and, you know, you just didn't have uh, much agency, but. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah. Great. I, I actually, my, my, for high school, I went to the high school of performing arts here in New York city. Um, yeah. And uh, I studied uh, music and, uh, and it's kind of the opposite. In a lot of cases you'd think, you know, and it appears to be like uh, you've given a lot of flexibility and freedom. But when it comes down to it, when you're when you're learning performing arts, there's 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 a lot of uh, you know, I had one orchestra orchestra conductor who screamed and screamed and screamed his head off at us. Um, although looking back a few years later, I realized that he actually cared very much about us and was doing right by us. Um, and it wasn't it was less about and what I realized at one point is it was less about him trying to control us and him more about him trying to impose lessons on us in his own way. Um, yeah. And I feel like I feel like in a teaching environment. It's, it's, it's some teachers don't understand the difference between, even if they sound the same, even if they're raising their voice, they need, it's, it's a difference between are you teaching versus are you just trying to control the, to control people? Right. And, yeah. and incidentally, I want to, I want to mention yeah. just how hard a job business, business analyst is, um, yeah. you know, being the person whose job it is. So I, I, um, back in, the late the late 90s early 2000s i had been man, an engineering manager um uh managing a team of software developers and engineers and, and architects and some business analysts at a uh small software company um yeah. in new york and yeah. then uh um i actually moved uh our, we've gotten enough business analysts and it was recognized that it was an important enough role in the company that i transitioned to being full just managing a team of business analysts so mm. my job was to hire business analysts and and and, and people doing requirements engineering and and, and, and business analysis. Yeah. And it took me practically a year just to hire six people because, um, just because I, uh, really filling that role. Well, you need somebody who both understands the technology so they can mm -hmm. design solutions and architect, you know, they can basically create their, you know, de define solutions for, for the team that, that are actually feasible that can actually be built. So you need yeah. to actually understand how you build things and what's built, but they also need to have a deep grasp of the business, not just mm -hmm. how the business works, but also, also the teams, like the, the people they're going to be working with. Right. Like in our case, there was a lot of salespeople and account managers, and they had to actually understand the business of the, the company. Right. That's, somebody with both of those sides, that's yeah. very hard. Like I, I ended up finding people who, you know, had 10 or 15 years of development experience followed by 10 years of business experience, you know, banking experience in this case, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, as it happened, I said, and I hired the best people I could find. And at one point I looked and I said, wait a second, for some reason, my team is all women. 
It just happened that the very best people I found happened to all be women. Yes. I don't know what that says about anything, but it, that just happens to be that happened to be the best resumes, the best in, the best the best environment I found. It was a yeah. one of the best teams I've ever worked with. It was it was it was sad to see them go when I left that job. Um, yeah. But, uh, well, one of, yeah. one of the things tying back to like the 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 culture of fear and the command and control. One of the things that I felt like. Uh, a business analyst, even though it was like an agile, it was kind of branded like it was like adaptive agile teams. Um, you know, one of the role of a business analyst is to really understand, uh, you know, the business problems and the needs and really challenge people's assumptions. And, you know, I felt very restricted in terms of showing up and even like sharing those ideas because just of the, of the culture and, uh, you know, kind of the command and control style because you know, that is the reason why we need BAs. Um, so anyways, um, that, that was a really good, uh, a good take. And, you know, that honestly, you know, it just kind of created some ahas for me in terms of tying, you know, self, uh, self-organization, command and control, what exists in the companies right now and, and the challenges that I've faced or have talked about. So that, that's really cool. Um, so um, let's let's deep uh, let's do a little bit deep dive on uh, Scrum plus Kanban. Scrumban, you've you've done some. Uh, you actually written a book about it. Uh, so yeah. So this is a couple uh, words. Like, how would you like teach a new team? Like, if they if they you know a lot of the times people use start with Scrum and they're like, oh look, there's all these tickets coming in and we have to. We, there's no option not to do it. So the, it's hard to keep up the sprint plan. I've, I've came up with that situation. So how do you coach a new team to uh, do Scrum Bond? Okay, so first of all, um, anytime you're coaching, there's an old teach, there's an old saying uh, about teaching, which is uh, teach people where they are, not where you want them to be. Mm-hmm. So the first step is understanding exactly where they are. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, people come to Scrum Band from a Scrum perspective. Yeah. And often what you were just talking about a not particularly well implemented scrum in, 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 in the sense that it might be working for them, but it's not particularly agile. Right. Um, so I like to go back to what it means for something to be agile to start with. Um, and, and honestly, I feel like the manifesto for agile development is, uh, is, is, is really a great starting point. Right. What does it mean? Individuals and interactions over processes and tools, right? Working, right. So, working software over comprehensive documentation. Um, you know, responding to change or following a plan. Uh, what I like to remind people first is when you say this over that, it doesn't mean that we don't believe in planning or comprehensive documentation. Yeah. It means that we, we value responding to change over following a plan. So our plan is great, but if we need to change, then we, then we make that change and we figure out a way to build our product so that it can be changed and do our planning so that it's easy to change. And the same way, like comprehensive, we value comprehensive documentation, but we value working software more. And, and there's no better way. And this is a basic idea of scrum, uh, scrum for software teams. There's no better way to give your teams, um, and a good understanding of what it is, the state of the software and the state of the project, Mm -hmm. than by putting real working software into their hands and, and letting them actually work with it. Like right. you have to do that. That's, that's, that's the, um, that's the, that's the most important, uh, most important measure of progress. Yeah. Um, now 
I like that as a starting point for teaching people about Scrum then. Because that first thing they'll say is, well, what, what about my Scrum implementation? Mm. Is your Scrum implementation, is it, um, are you, are you really, are you really, um, you know, are you really iterative for the first, for, for first of all, like, yeah. are you really, um, are, are you really able to make changes? If halfway through your sprint, you realize, wait, you know, someone comes to you and says, this, we've got this other requirement, we really need to make this change, and it's a big change. And it's gonna make a lot of work for the team. Is your first, is your first instinct to resist that change and say, well, this is gonna be a lot of work. Let's, let's, let's figure out how we can not make that change. Or is your first instinct to say, well, of course, if that's the, what we really need and we know that's what we really need, then let's make, we'll make that change. Right. Um, like accepting and understanding change. And that's, that's one of these basic ideas of agile and that's really drive scrum. Yeah. Um, so, so then where I go from there is help them understand, okay, so what is scrum? What is Kanban? Mm. You know, scrum, the framework for delivering products. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's iterative, it's incremental. It, it's it, we we break things down into iterations called sprints. We have these daily meetings where we expect the plan. Mm -hmm. We as we start each sprint with planning. We end it with a demo where we uh, where we re review where we demonstrate our working software. And yeah. if we didn't build anything, we look our team in the eye and our users and stakeholders in the eye and say, we didn't get it done. Yeah. And and uh, and then afterwards we have a retrospective, right. where where we actually look back and, and, and learn lessons immediately and apply them immediately. Mm -hmm. That's pretty familiar to most of us. Right. Um, Kanban, so Kanban is a little more new for a lot of us mm. and, um, and it's extremely effective. But uh, what Kanban is, is a process improvement method. And that's, that's, the first, that's the first thing that people kind of have trouble with is what does that mean? What does it mean for somebody to be a process improvement method? Mm. Uh, what it means is, you is, is not changing the way you manage your products because Scrum is about product management and product, product development, delivery, and, 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 and sustaining those products. Right. Um, process improvement is about looking at the way you do things today and figuring out exactly what you're doing now and trying to change it so you can do things better in the future. Mm. So, um, so, uh, and it can be, so first of all, it's was, it was, it was formulated um, by uh, a guy named David Anderson, who actually um, helped um, Jenny and me with uh, doing some really fan amazing review for us for our book, Learning Agile, um, on our Kanban chapter. Um, it's a great guy, um, really innovative work. Um, and, and what he does, what, you know, the idea here is you, um, you, you, you basically have some very basic important elements. You start with what the team does now, meaning right. you look at, you look at, what you're actually doing and try to really understand second one is understand the process mm. um using things like like a value stream map where you take an actual piece of work that was actually done and you map it okay so it was it was uh in planning for this many days and then it waited and then there was doing a requirements analysis and it waited and then it went to design and it waited and then the developers worked on it for these you know for this many days and then the testers tested it for this long and then it waited for another review and you 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 look at exactly the actual steps that it goes through. Um, and that, that'll make a process. And in Kanban, the processes are linear. So you'll see them, if you've seen a, a Kanban board, it kind of looks like a, a familiar task board that a lot of Scrum teams use. So they'll have a board where it says uh, three columns to do in progress and done. A Kanban board will have usually a lot of processes, a lot of, a lot of columns rather, 
that correspond okay. to the actual steps that each piece of work goes through. And mm. so they're going to be different for different organizations or different right. teams. Yeah. Um, and, and what you'll do then is you, ex you do experimenting. You set a whip limit, a work in progress limit by saying only six, you say only six work items can be in this one stage. And if there's a seventh one that's going to go in that stage, we won't do it. And we're going to work elsewhere on other parts of the project. Um, can and we then what, a little double click? Uh, can we talk a little bit more about uh, setting up the whip limit? I think that's where sure. a lot of people struggle with why live with them and how to set it up. I think like yes, that. that is, you're right. Well, that's, that's very much the, uh, the, the most difficult. Uh, the, there's a lot of difficulty there. Um, so I'm going to take a step back and talk a little bit about flow, just a little bit. And this is the theory behind it. Um, it comes from something called uh, a, a queuing theory. Um, I'm not going to go into much of the math about it, except for one thing. There's something called Little's Law. Yeah. Um, and Little's law says that there, that there, there, there's a, there's a simple ratio it's proportional that, 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 that relates the arrival rate, the rate at which work items are added to the system mm -hmm. and the total capacity of the system, the number of total work items total in the system. Um, and what, what we find is that, uh, it, the, um, the lead, the lead time when you need to talk about when you know, the time between when somebody makes a request and when it actually actually get their, their hands on what, what you've delivered to them. Um, that is entirely dependent on that flow. And what, um, and, and what we what, what sort of a queuing theory says is you could, if you've got a set, a set of stages in the process, if one of those stages, um, if, if one of those stages is essentially causing a bottleneck, although we don't really talk about bottlenecks in Kanban, mm -hmm. um, you, um, if you limit the flow there, then you can actually speed up your entire process by limiting the place where, where things are getting clogged up in the system. Right. Um, and that sounds really theoretical. And that's where, where a lot of people kind of go off the rails. They're not really sure what to make of it. Um, so what, um, what uh, Jenny and I did in, our, in Learning Agile is we actually drew a, drew a parallel to a doctor's office mm. um, where, uh, where we, um, where we, um, let's say you had to visit a particular doctor, right? Mm -hmm. And and you had to, you you um, you 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 find out that you've actually have to go back a few times, and so you mm -hmm. you have several experiences in their waiting room, mm -hmm. um, and each time it doesn't seem like there are that many people in the waiting room, but you're waiting forever, and it takes forever to, and we've all had that experience waiting in a doctor's right. waiting room, um, so what you would do is um, how how would you use how would you use flow? These ideas of flow, and um, and 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 uh, and whip limits to, un to to kind of improve that doctor's that doctor's office. Mm. Well, you could come up with a simple process. Right. You've got, let's say the pro like the, the, my doctor. You'll sit there in the waiting room, and then they'll bring you into an exam room. And usually, you'll sit there for another few minutes before the doctor actually sees you. Right. Um, so let's say let's say there's let's say they have five exam rooms and two doctors. Um, so you can have a whole bunch of people seated in the waiting room. You've got a natural whip limit of five on the exam rooms because you can only have five people in exam rooms because once you've got five people in those exam rooms, you're never going to put two patients in the same exam room. Right. People are going to be waiting. So every time, every time you, um, if, you've, if, you've, if you've filled up all the exam rooms, then people are going to just have to wait and sit in the waiting room. Also, there's only two doctors. So right. there's another natural whip limit on, on that column for seeing the doctor. Because there can only be two, uh, 
two people in this doc in, 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 in at, at any time seeing up either zero, one or two people are seeing doctors. Right. So if you were going to draw this on a board, you'd have like a sticky note or a post-it or you know or, or a next kind of thing. One patient for one person for each patient in the, in the waiting room, yeah. and then you would move them from the waiting room to the exam room. Um, every time someone moved to the exam room, and then every time the doctor walked in, you'd move them from the, from the waiting in the exam room column to seeing the doctor column. Right. Um, so what you would what you could find is um, since you have this, uh, what you could do is um, is let's say let's say you wanted to adopt a whip, put put in a new work in progress limit. Well, you already have limits on the exam room and seeing the doctor. So there's only one other place you can put a limit. And that's the number of people seated in the waiting room. So let's say, let's say the, the office staff said, you know what? We are not going to seat more, pe more than six people. Usually there's like 10 or 15 people in this waiting room. We're never going to allow more than six people in the waiting room. And what mm. we'll do is if we hit four or five people, we'll actually get on, pick up the phone and call the people waiting and who, who are going to be waiting and tell them, hey, um, our waiting room is getting kind of full. We see that you're just here for a regular checkup. It's not urgent. Can we reschedule you? And when you get here, you'll be the first, per we'll immediately bring you back to an exam room. You won't have to wait at all in the waiting room. Yeah. So, so you, um, that most people will say, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, and so they'll be able to put that, so, so then put, putting that, that whip limit in the waiting room, what they've done is they've reduced the total arrival rate. Right. Because and they, they, they by putting the whip limit in place that forced them to reduce the number of people who walk into the door of the office. And by doing that, they push, they reduce the total amount of pressure on the on the on the flow. And the average wait time that everybody has will actually go down significantly. Right. Um, yeah. I saw this actually work in real life. Um, so when when we are in Minneapolis, when my, when my wife and I are in Minneapolis, um, we live on a, you know, a high floor and a large apartment building. Nice. Um, and for some reason, when they designed and built this building, they put the swimming pool on the roof. Yes. And that's a terrible place to put a swimming pool. The reason you don't do that is because one day, two or three years ago, this pool sprang a leak, leaked all over a bunch of apartments, luckily not ours, and also took several of the elevators out of commission. Um, so we went down from four elevators to two elevators. And then at one point it went down to even one elevator. When it went from four to two, that slowed things down. We start, we had to wait an extra two or three minutes uh, mm. for each elevator. But as soon as it went down from two elevators to one elevator, so that set that whip limit down from two to one, um, the wait times went up from like two minutes to 10 minutes. It was unreal, sometimes even 15 or 20 minutes. It was unreal how much just a single extra elevator makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's um, without going into the actual math and theory behind it, that's a good example of why queuing theory and setting whip limits actually works. By change, setting, setting a whip limit in the waiting room of the doctor's office, you can relieve pressure on the entire process and, and the, the total time that it takes from when you show up to when you leave goes down on average for everybody. Yeah. And that's, now here's the thing, and this is also why Kanban is hard. Um, the, 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 the office staff actually had to do some work. They have to actually call people up and say, well, we have to, we have to basically offer you something of value to, be, to agree not to come in because we're overburdened right now. Yeah. And that's a technical, that's a term for it, when you've got a system that's overburdened. Right. Well, what does that look like on a software team, for example? 
well, let's say you've got four or five or 10 steps to process. And one of those is, you know, senior managers, um, senior managers are, are waiting to review something. Right. Well, let's say that's where, where things clog up. So you see like 15 or 20 different post-its or index cards have clogged up in that one senior manager review process. Well, that's, now you have to actually go, if you want to put a whip, whip limit there, you want to say, okay, let's limit the worst in progress, not allow more than say eight item work items in this, in this column. You actually have to go to that senior manager and say, you know what, you need to, you need to start reviewing these things more frequently and we're not going to put anything more on any other work items on your desk right. until you get through your backlog. Mm. So that's a really hard to conversation to have with some senior managers. They're going to be mad. They're like, no, fix it somewhere else. I'm the boss. You're not the boss. You don't tell me what to do. I tell you what to do. Yes. You know, that's, um, you know, the bosses that we've both had in the past, like I'm very fortunate that the managers that I'm working with right now are amazing. And that's yes. one reason that the team that I've been working with lately has, you know, for the last few years has, has just been incredible and why I keep working with them. Right. Um, but we've, I've, you know, in the past I've worked with managers who would never put up with that kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, now when it works well, what happens is you've, ex they, when you can actually have a dialogue with your managers and with the people who are making decisions and you actually can put these limits in place, then what you actually see is, especially, this is especially important when you have multiple people, multiple, multiple managers feeding work into the same team, like teams that are doing work for multiple different stakeholders, mm -hmm. they'll start doing horse trading. They'll say, we know we only have six slots here in this one, in this one, this one, uh, this one process column. Um, and one manager will actually go to another and say, look, this one really needs to get done. What can, what can we do? What, maybe if I do this now, I'll let you have the next two slots. Yeah. They start horse trading amongst themselves. Right. What you've done is then you've taken the burden and taken it out of the system and pushed it back onto the people who are actually causing, causing, the, causing the burden, which is the managers putting too much work into the system in the first place. Right. That's what Kanban does. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a lot of details to it, like what signal cards Kanbans actually are, um, how, how setting up pull systems. Um, and, and there's, and, and if you, uh, and, and, um, and that's what, that's what, what a scrum band is all about. It's just going into details of how that works. Um, and we talk a lot about that in learning agile as well, exactly how you set up a full system and what that looks like. Right. Um, but before you can even get there, just the basics of what exactly it is to set up whip limits to improve your process. Mm. Um, you know, and the other piece of it is experimentation. You set a whip limit. We think setting a whip limit here of six will work. Well, that did okay. Maybe five is better. Maybe seven is better. So what you'll do is you'll actually measure the flow through your system. And there's measurements you can take. You can, uh, you can create these cumulative flow, cumulative flow diagrams. But really what you can do is just measure your average lead time. Right. The lead time between when someone requests things and when they deliver it. Yeah. The, take the, if the la average lead time goes up, then you moved your whip limit in the wrong direction. If the average lead time goes down, you moved it in the right direction. Right. And the whole, it gives you a really simple way to set up these experiments. Set a whip limit, measure the lead time. And over the next couple of weeks or months or however long, it takes yeah. you to decide whether your experiment worked. And then you adjust based on that real information. Mm. Um, and that should be very familiar to Scrum teams because Scrum is all about experimenting. Scrum right. is all about actually, um, actually um, using, you know, that's what iterative software is about. It's about, 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 setting up at the beginning of the sprint, here's what we think is going to happen. And then over the course of the sprint, making adjustments based on real facts. Um, the, uh, the, what, what, um, you know, it's, it's what, uh, um, you know, when, when you read about scrum, what you'll, uh, 
what you'll talk about is, you know, in scrum theory is mm -hmm. empirical process control, right. empiricism, meaning knowledge that, that, that comes from, you know, experience and, and making actual decisions, not right. just guesses, but actually looking at facts and making changes. And that's, and if you've got a scrum team that's based on actual empirical process control, that's actually doing real inspections and making real adaptations based on the facts they've made visible, based on real transparency, right. then can then will make a lot of sense to them. Right. But if you've got something that's calling themselves Scrum or Agile and has adopted a lot of language, but they're really still just a command and control team, these things are gonna sound very foreign to them because right. what they're really doing is planning up front, um, probably because of that CYA environment we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, and this probably won't work that well for them because they've got, they've got a culture that might be less based on trust and more based on blame. Um, right. And in that case, a command control say, you know, CYA system really makes the most sense for everybody because you need that documentation to prove that it's not your fault. Because most important is you want to keep your job for the you know, next year. Right. You, want to be, you don't want to be fired because something went wrong, even if it's not your fault. Right. Um, and uh, so, yeah. That's, yeah. So that's, that's, so that's so, sort of so, Scrum in a nutshell there. Yeah. So, so you're saying that, you know, with Scrum, it's a product delivery framework. You know, you can inspect and adapt, plan you know, it's an iterative and incremental approach. And then when you come, when you combine with more of a flow based approach, like Kanban, you are, um, you have opportunity to, uh, you know, really create that flow and really experiment on what, how do you improve the process of delivering value? Uh, right. And then you also, initially you also talked about uh, one of the hardest problem is what to build. Do you, have you seen anything? around when in Scrum Bond where there is a, a validated column uh, in terms of inspecting and adapting on like, okay, we, we said, we're, if we build this feature, this will happen. Um, has that happened? Because a lot of the times it's a hypothesis when we, when teams are building something for the first time, right? So. Right, well, so that's, you know, what, um, you know, if you have a team that does that kind of a validation at the end of the process, mm -hmm. then, then, um, then you'll, you'll show that on your Kanban board. Yeah. You'll, you'll define it and then you'll build it and you'll validate it. Um, mm -hmm. That, that, you know, in a sprint review, you know, in, in, a, in a scrum, in a scrum team, your sprint review is your validation. Mm. And what you learn from that validation is you didn't build it right because we never got it exactly right. The whole point is to iterate. Right. Um, and I feel like the, a really good scrum team under the people on it and the people working with them understand that, um, that the goal is not to build the perfect piece of software is to build something based on what we understand and then learn from what learn from it by talking to the people who need the software and then build something improve it based on what we learned right um and the role of this one important role of a scrum master is to help everybody not just in the team but the people working with the team understand that that's how you work with these people that's how you work with with our team is we will all work together to try to understand, you know, we as a team will, will understand that you don't know exactly what you want. Yeah. And you as a stakeholder will understand that we can't read your mind. Right. And so we'll work together and you'll understand that when we build something that's not perfect, that's okay because we'll get it closer next time. Um, and you won't, you won't. Um, and because the minute that a stakeholder sees the wrong thing and freaks out, that's the time, that's the moment that the team closes ranks and realize they have to protect themselves. Right. That's because what you've done is you've eroded the trust there. Because right. again, it all comes down to trust. And part of the scrum master's role in that servant leadership role is to help establish that trust and grow that trust. 
because mm-hmm. trust is earned and grown over time. It's not just something you can come up, come out with. Right. Um, so that's that. And then, and this works both in pure like scrum and also in scrum band and everything in between any team, even a waterfall team works better when you have, and I've worked on waterfall teams that worked really, really well. And it was because we established this trust between the people who needed the software and, the, the, and those of us building the software. Nice. Nice. And then just to kind of wrap up the, the scrum bank uh, commu- uh, communication. So like in terms of the planning, you know, just a quick, like, like what does the planning look like? Uh, like, cause there's no, there's no exact sprint planning. Like what does that planning look like? A lot of so there is, what it is is um, so scrum ban, like it is a hybrid between scrum and Kanban. Mm-hmm. So it's built, it's generally built on scrum and uses scrum as a starting point. Um, if you're using scrum, yeah. You, um, if you're not quite using Scrum, you start with wherever you are. Mm. But generally, what happens is you start with you start with um, you start with uh, essentially um, a sort of out of the box classic implementation of Scrum. Right. And then you use that process improvement that we talked about, setting whip limits and doing experimentation to figure out where you can improve it. Because mm. it's not just those Scrum, you know, the uh, the Scrum. Um, uh, ceremonies, as people like to call them, the, the right. specific, uh, you know, plan, sprint, you know, you'll do sprint planning, daily scrum, sprint review, retrospective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just those things that are going to be on a column, but there's other things that, that you'll learn along the way that there's other things that go into it, like right. various reviews with people, various demos, um, mm-hmm. different levels of kinds of testing that you'll do. Um, right. And, and your, 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 your columns will grow past just those basic columns. Um, right. But what a hybrid is, what 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 um the reason it's the reason what makes Scrum Band work is that and what makes it a true hybrid of Scrum and uh, and Kanban is a, scry- a hybrid of Scrum and anything else is going to preserve the essence of Scrum and the essence mm-hmm. of Scrum is that empiricism is that empirical process control that we talked about right. where you're actually making decisions based on real knowledge and it right. it has an inspection visibility adaptation cycle. And that's going to always be there at the core of it. And you're always going to, which means you're always going to have to have planning. You're always going to, it's, you know, Scrum is at its nature, iterative and incremental. Now you can move into something that's more cadence and more, more, uh, it has more of a release cadence rather than an iterations as equally valid. Even then you're still going to be planning. But, right. um, but, uh, but many Kanban teams really like Scrum and really like the rules of Scrum and stick with them very well and use, use their improvement to find other places to improve, but tend but might not actually touch the sprint planning at all. Um, others that have 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 migrated to a more a more cadence driven system will have a, have more of a cadence planning where you plan individual work items, and then the planning becomes another a different column on the board that's done. And instead of planning a whole bunch of work items at once, you'll plan them individually. Um, nice, but you're still planning. Now that 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 sums it up. So, thanks for sharing that. Um, what are some challenges that you see uh, teams come across as they're uh, trying to start with Scrum Bond? Let's say they have decided, okay, we're going to do Scrum Bond. What, what kind of challenges or pitfalls do you, that you tell people to avoid? Sure. So there are two really, really common misconceptions. Um, and, and unfortunately, um, while some of the people who developed Scrum Band, like Corey Lattis, um, did a phenomenal job. And if you listen to... Um, or, or, you know, you watch Heinrich Nyberg's videos um, or read what he's written. Mm. You, you, they've got some really great information. 
Yeah. Um, if you just search for Scrum Band, what you'll find is some really common misconceptions, yeah. such as that Scrum Band is essentially iterationless Scrum, which isn't true. Like if you actually read the, the, the original paper on Scrum Band written by Corey Lattice, you'll see, like he, he actually says, um, he, he's, he's, he, he, the very first example he has in there is, a, is an, iterative, an iterative process that has a time box iteration and planning, just like with Scrum, but it's also set up a pull system. Like Scrum Band definitely has iterations unless you explicitly don't want iterations in it. Um, right. But people think, and the reason people might, uh, gravitate towards that misconception is that they, um, that is that they, uh, iteration is hard. Iteration is where you, when you don't build something, you have to look at users in the eye and say, yeah, we didn't build it. Where yeah. your users are gonna come back to you and tell you to change direction and changing direction can be hard. Yeah. You have to construct, that's where you confront the truth of your the truth. And it's a lot easier, especially in the command control system, to push that truth off six months down when you're doing a review. Mm. And then, then everything's blurred so no one really takes the blame. So telling someone, hey, you can use this thing called Scrum, it's called Scrum Band, which basically means take away all the iterations. People right. say, yes, I want that because that's the hard part. Right. Well, it's just, that's not true. That's not what Scrum Band is. So that's one of the, one of the challenges. And the other challenge is, that, that I find is um, is uh, is that um, that uh, when when you have um, when you have uh, Scrum Band is is kind of a system of project management, mm. like where you say, well, what this is is you you look at a Kanban board with all those columns. It really looks like a task board. A task board is a product owner, a product and project management tool. You move tasks across it. That's not what a Scrum Band, a Kanban board is for. A Kanban board is a visualization tool to help you visualize your workflow and discover more parts of more things about it and figure out where to put and impose with limits. That's mm -hmm. not for project management. But it's really, really easy. And you know, especially if you go into Jira and you create a new Kanban board, that's you've created a project management tool. Mm -hmm. And you move items around, and it's it's really really easy to look like look at a Kanban board and say, well, Kanban that's a project management tool. Kanban is just about project management. It really isn't. It's about process improvement. Scrum right. is about project management and product development. That's mm -hmm. why Ken Schwaber's book from the '90s is called Agile Project Management with Scrum. Mm -hmm. um, it's that's not all that Scrum is about, obviously, but that is a major component of it. Right. And so those two misconceptions. Scrum Band as project management and Scrum Band as just iteration with a Scrum. Those are, if you search online and read a lot about Scrum Band, you're going to find that that's what a lot of things tell you, and those things are not true. And that's yeah. so a, a starting point for, for getting for the, like a big roadblock, big stumbling block between is getting past those major misconceptions. Nice. Yeah, great, great. So, um, another conversation. Uh, let's talk about change. So, this is all, you know, there's all kind of transformation going around um, in companies trying to go agile, trying to implement Scrum, trying to implement Scrumban. Uh, and all of this actually requires change. And we all have certain capacity for change. Some people have more capacity, some people have less. What do you have to uh, share about, um, you know, resisting the change or change in general, which is uh, at the core of agility? So, so I'll tell you. Um... And I feel like this is this is probably a really good a really good thing to um, for everybody. Like if, if I wanted to have one thing that everybody that I wanted to tell everybody to keep in mind is that change is really hard. Um, there's a great quote 
um, from a fantastic book um, uh, by DeMarco and Lister called Peopleware. Um, mm. It's actually, it is a quote in one of the beginning of the chapters. Um, um, people hate change. They really, really hate change. They really hate it. Yeah. And here's the thing. Um, that's rational. When we're trying to make changes, it's really, it's really tempting for us to say, well, those people are trying to resist the change I'm putting in place. They're being irrational. They're, by the change I'm making is totally logical and the right thing to do. Why are they irrationally resisting my change? Mm. Um, the, uh, the thing is, from their perspective, they've probably seen a dozen, two dozen change, change initiatives and transformations like this that came and went and they should have just ignored them because it just made their hard li lives hard and then went away. Yeah. Now think of it from their perspective. Right. Yesterday, I, if I'm the person asking to make a change, being asked to make a change, yesterday I knew that I could do my job. I knew that you know, I probably, at the end of the week, I'd have gotten what I need to get done. At the end of the month, I have looked good. At the end of the quarter, I might have a good review. At the end of the year, I probably get a decent, you have the raise I expect. But now, tomorrow, now you made me make this change. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to work. I no longer know if I am actually going to be able to do my job. Right. You've just threatened that whole thing. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get, get that raise. I don't know if I'm going to get fired because this change actually screws my whole job up. Mm -hmm. you, when we, when something messes with our ability to bring food home to our families, that um, it kind of messes with that caveman portion of the brain yeah. that says, you know, that hunter gatherer part of our brain right. and we resist it. And I have to say, it's not necessarily irrational to resist. From that perspective, it, it's actually rational to resist that change. Right. So my advice to anybody who is trying to make change is empathy. Try to understand it from the, people, from the people's perspective, the people whose lives you're affecting. Try to understand it from their jobs, from their ability to do their work and to bring food home to their family. And recognize that you need to understand things from their perspective. You need to talk to them, get, not just get them on board because you've got to get people on board because that's what all of our change management books say. You've got to get them on board because they're going to tell you where you're screwing up. And they're going to tell you how they, what they need to see in order to be on board with it. Because other, what they need to know to be able to feel comfortable that they can still do their jobs. Mm. That's how you make change work. And that, that applies not just to agile transformation or even digital transformation, any right. kind of organizational transformation. No, I, I hear you. That is such an amazing point. And that's, uh, that, you know, we're going to, that was a powerful point where, and we're going to wrap up the podcast at that point. So great. It was, it was an amazing conversation, Andrew. Uh, thank you so much. You shared some great insights and people are going to learn and enjoy uh, enjoy a lot of this conversation. So, um, so you've obviously got several books. You're doing a lot of things. Uh, Summer is here. You're, are you are you now uh, going to be in Minneapolis? What's the, um, the we're we're sticking around New York because my parents are in New York and we're sort of sticking around to keep an eye on them. Good. Um, good. So uh, yeah, yeah. And, I can't wait to get back to Minneapolis just because I, I love I love Minnesota. Yes. Um, so hopefully that happens. And last thing, where where can people find you? Where where are you like these days? Um, sure. Um, you can find me. Um, uh, uh, go to our website, uh, stelman-green, G-R-E-E-N-E.com. Um, you can uh, find me on Twitter at Andrew Stelman, just my full name. Um, and you can also find me on LinkedIn at Andrew Stelman. Yeah, great. Yeah, definitely check out uh, Andrew's book, Andrew's um, and Twitter. I I'm definitely going to follow you. Uh, and with that, uh, that is a wrap. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me.